Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another great episode of Tide Chasers Podcast, um, where each week we try to bring you the best guests from across the fishing industry. Before we get started, please remember that you can give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Tide underscore Chasers, and check us out on all your major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Um, also, if you haven't already, make sure that you tune into our most recent episode. Uh, Kwan and I got to sit down with John Grasta. Um, he works at the fly department at the Bass Pro Shops in Orlando, Florida, and we nicknamed John the King of Spay because he taught us everything there is to know about spay rods. Um, he's an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to spay fishing with the two-handed fly rod and had some great stories about tarpon fishing and, uh, even catching ribbon fish on the fly down in Florida. So that's a great episode. You'll definitely want to check it out, um, from our previous episode, but for tonight's episode, I'm joined by my co-host Kwa. Kwa, how are you doing tonight? Good, Tyler. What's going on, man? I'm kind of excited about tonight's episode. Uh, just... He's uh he's visited one of my dream bucket list spots. So some days I just want to choke him to death because he's already done it before me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, tonight's episode is definitely going to be a little uh something different than we've done here uh, recently, but it's going to be a great episode. Um, you know, if, if you're like any of us here at Tide Chasers, you love to dream about places that you want to go fish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and sometimes we hope those dreams can become a reality. And certainly for our good friend and fellow co-host Bobby Norgard. That dream became a reality here very recently when he got a chance to travel to Africa and go fish in the Seychelles. So Bobby's joining us here tonight. Um, we're going to do a little bit of a recap episode talking about his incredible trip, um, the fishing that he got to experience. And we're going to hear all about that. So that way, you know, if you're dreaming about going to the Seychelles as well, hopefully you can get some information from this and it either inspires you to make that dream a reality or helps you out in planning that trip. So how are you doing tonight, Bobby? I'm okay. I spent the entire day at the Yale Innovation Summit. Oh. While our other co-host, Lee Wakefield, was out crushing bass. 
I'm guessing Tyler was out trout fishing and Qua was probably on a boat somewhere. So I had the worst day out of all of us. That's for sure. I, I might come in second. I was on a boat. You were right, Bobby. But I was dealing with about 450 elementary school kids. Oh, that is rough. I did get to hear our brightest minds pitch their ideas that they're going to change the world. So it wasn't all that bad, but uh, mentally exhausting, but pretty cool to to witness and hear. Okay. I don't know, um, unless it can improve my fishing. I don't know. I don't know. If yeah, I'm me was, this was not iCast. This was uh, a lot of AI stuff, a lot of AI tech, cybersecurity tech, um, cancer research stuff. We're really not talking about fishing here anymore. So we should just get off this topic and move on. Yeah, before we make your <laughs> your, your your bad day even longer. <laughs> We're going to give that one a thumbs down emoji and replace it with a fishing emoji. <clears throat> All right, yeah. Bobby. So, um, you know, Recently, I'm sure if anyone follows you on Instagram, they got a chance to see some of the incredible pictures and videos that you were posting of of, uh, you and your wife's trip to first Africa um, for a little bit of a safari and then moving on to fishing in the Seychelles. So why don't you give us a little bit of an idea about how this trip came together, um, you know, how it became a reality and kind of where you were at? Yeah. So for anyone that's a fly fisherman or a fly angler, especially that likes to tangle with some saltwater species, pretty much the number one destination in the world is the Seychelles. And I've been pronouncing it the seashells for way too long, and I've been yelled at several times. So I will say Seychelles every time. Uh, And if I say seashells, you can all have a drink on me. But I really wanted to go to the Seychelles for many, many, many years. And I was planning our honeymoon with my wife. And pretty much what happened was we were originally going to go to New Zealand and we were going to trace brown trout. And when our wedding happened back in 2020, so we're in 2023 now, so you can see how long it took me to do a honeymoon. uh, New Zealand shut down. They shut down the island, so I couldn't go to New Zealand at all. So we were going to put it off for a year. Well, you all know the COVID story, so COVID continued. And pretty much 2021 came and went. New Zealand still wasn't open. 2022 came around and New Zealand still wasn't open. So we were like, Jesus, what are we going to do? And I said, how about we just all the ball and go to the Seychelles? And pretty much Tabby has no idea what the Seychelles is, which I'm guessing most of our listeners will have some idea. I hope so. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, you definitely need to look it up. Um, And pretty much she said, oh, that's a beautiful island. We can go there. And I said, yes. Now, here's the thing. Did you knock that in there? Yeah, you, you slid that in there, but did you tell her it has anything to do with fishing when this came Well, about? then we kind of got into me trying to book it, and you have to reserve the boat because if you don't reserve the boat, somebody else on the island can sneak in there and do it. So you have to reserve the boat for seven days, and then you have to get the fishing package. So you get the 12 weight rod if you don't have one. So it quickly snowballed into holy shit, we're going to fish for seven days. I'm not doing that. And I said, okay, hold on, back up. What do you want to do? And she said, I really want to do an African safari. So I actually booked this trip through Yellow Dog Fishing, which is a stellar company. I've never done anything with them before. I would highly recommend booking your trip with them. They made everything seamless. Not a single thing went wrong on this trip. And I heard if something does go wrong, they quickly just pick it up and fix it immediately and figure out how to solve all your problems. So um, I contacted Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, who booked this Seychelles trip for us and ask them if they do any African safaris. And they partner with this company called Blue Safari, um, which has camps kind of all over the place. And at the time, we were watching an Amazon special on the Okavanga Delta. 
which is located in Botswana. So they had a place in Botswana on the Gamoti Plains that they deal with, and they go all over the Okavanga Delta. So we booked, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. We booked seven days on the Okavanga Delta, followed by seven days of Seychelles Island relaxation. And the uh, the geography nerd in me is coming out right now. So for those, if you are not familiar with that area of the world, Botswana is a country in Southern Africa. Um, and the Seychelles are a group of islands that are off the coast of East Africa out in the Indian Ocean. So sorry, like the uh, the total geography map nerd is coming out of me right now. I just know the country yeah. of Africa. That's all I know. So yeah. just just say north, east, <laughs> west, or south for me. That's all I know. <laughs> right. So in our in our Africa trip when we were planning it, I actually did get really excited because there is an option to do fishing at these camps we were going to. Oh. Uh, and actually, one was in Gamoti, and the other one was called Kiri. And I got stupid excited because we were going April, which is the end of the rainy season which I thought meant there's going to be tons of water. Well, turns out that's not how it works in Africa. So I learned a lot about Africa and water <laughs> movement. So the way it works in the Okavanga Delta, if you've ever seen it, uh, the Okavanga Delta fills with water. I mean, crazy amounts of water every single year. It's completely uh, recapitulating. Like it just happens the same time every single year. And it does happen at the end of the rainy season. But the saying they have there is the Okavanga Delta is backwards meaning it actually fills with water way after the rainy season's over. So it's actually in the dry season that it's filled with water. And the way that works, yeah, you're giving me looks. Nobody else can see your looks, but it's like, what the hell are you talking about? So the way it works is there's a, a country above Botswana called Angola. And Angola has a rainy season, the same time Botswana does. But Angola gets tons of rain, so much rain. And that water creeps down like a river, just little by little, inches by inches every day. So... What happens is the Okavanga Delta actually floods from the water in Angola, not from the water that actually falls in Botswana. So it does eventually get there, and it is because of the rainy season, but the water just doesn't show up until way after the rainy season's over. So when I was there, there was no water, so there was no fishing. There was actually one mud puddle that was filled with burbots, which are catfish. Uh, and they were obviously not going to make it because by the time the water finally gets to them, they were going to be dead. But there was one giant puddle that you could see them all flapping around in and birds were coming eating them. It was a pretty cool sight. Made me want to like whip out the fly rod and try to catch one real quick as nine lions were drinking out of it. So it was it was probably not the best move, but I tried to get the guy to let us do it. Challenge accepted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so back to this trip. So. Uh, the worst part about this trip, as anyone should know or will know, is the travel. Um, mm -hmm. To get to the Seychelles is absolutely goddamn ridiculous. There's no other way to put it. There's no good way to do it. I mean, most people that I talked to flew through Dubai. So you do, I don't know, wherever you're flying from the United States to Dubai, and then Dubai to the Seychelles, and then the Seychelles to whatever island you're actually going to. Because the Seychelles is actually made up of 115 islands, and they all... Not all of them, but most of them are known for different fishing locations. Um, the main island is called Mahi, M-A-H-E. And the island I ended up actually going to was Alphonse, which is kind of one of the most famous um, with Alphonse Fishing Company. But before I get into that, let me back up to Africa. So our trip was a little different because we didn't fly through Dubai. We actually flew through South, South Africa because we did the African safari first. So we flew into South Africa. We had a night in South Africa, uh, drank a lot of South African wine, which 
I did not know at the time that South Africa is known for wine. They have stellar good wine. It's crazy yeah. how good it is. Um, we ate crocodile that night, and then we had venison, which anyone who knows Africa, venison it can be anything in Africa. And the venison we ate was ostrich, which is also stupid good. So our first night there, we had ostrich. Oh, we also had crocodile ceviche. No, crocodile uh, capriccio. Sorry, it was Italian style. Whoa. Uh, so it was raw crocodile and then ostrich cooked rare with South African wine. It was crazy good. We got back this up. So it's an ostrich, which is a bird that <laughs> runs around and has legs and a long neck. We're speaking the same bird, right? Yes, the right. same but, bird. So the meat they call from an ostrich, they call it venison. They do. They call that, venison down there. Is that legit? Because all I know in the States, when we have venison, it's deer. It's always right. deer, yes. So when you go down there, they just kind of group venison into everything. So we also had venison another night, and it was a, an animal called a kudu, which is kind of like a deer antelope kind of thing. Um, so, so venison is just kind of an all-encompassing term. So usually when you have to ask about it, you have to ask the waitress or the waiter, what what's the venison tonight? And It's like, it's it's like the mystery awful. meat in the school it's cafeteria. Mystery meat. Pretty, yeah, pretty so, much. So word of advice, guys, when you guys go to Africa, if they have venison on the menu, ask them what it is before you can you or do just, a or just get it because it was so good i mean it yeah. was so good um I, and ostrich meat by the way is not like white chicken meat it's dark it's cooked rare oh it's great tastes just like am I, am I the only one that found it funny that the table turned on the crocodile in that story well you know <laughs> like crocodile being the one of the most dangerous animals in africa outside of the hippos and the lions and you're sitting there eating raw crocodile also very good. I would highly recommend getting that as well. I mean, I've had gator. I mean, I would assume somewhat kind of the same. Texture. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, but it's a crocodile. Know. Just being there special, I think. Yeah. Um, so that kind of set the tone for a trip. So I was already happy with the trip. I was like, we're good. It's done. And I really didn't look into any of this. So I was envisioning like we're going on the safari. Like we're going to see lions and hippos like way off in the distance. So I was not ready for what was about to happen. Like, um, so in the morning, we had to overnight in South Africa. We got on a plane to go to Maun, Botswana, or Maun, however you want to say it. Uh, I asked the locals how they say it, and they pretty much told me however you want to say it. So I'm going to go with Maun. And we show up in Maun, and then almost immediately we get shuffled out into a helicopter, which was the coolest effing thing I've ever done in my entire life. It's this very tiny helicopter. Uh, and luckily the pilots there are phenomenal and were joking with us. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified, shitting my pants, to be honest, about being in this tiny little helicopter. <clears throat> but he picks this thing up and it's it's so much fun. I mean, it's so simple for them to drive it and get us out there. Didn't feel dangerous, in danger at any moment in that entire flight. Uh, and as we're going over, you get the first glimpse of the Okavanga Delta which there is a river actually called the Gamoti that runs through it. Uh, and we're up in the airplane and almost immediately you see elephants and giraffes and, and antelopes and impalas just everywhere. I mean, and we're not even on the ground yet. So they're just animals everywhere. I mean, you know, me and Tabby are again, crapping our pants and looking at everything and all excited and everything. And finally they touch down at our camp and I don't even know how to describe it. You just have to see pictures of it because the camps there are just out of this world. I mean, they're camps. Don't don't get me wrong. You're not expecting a five-star luxury resort. They are a tent. It's a tent material with the wall. Um, 
and there's no fence around it. So nature comes in and out as it pleases, which is a little scary when it's dark and uh, and you can hear them moving around in the in the distance. So so no midnight potty breaks. No, there's no walking around in the dark by yourself. You have to grab Sounds a like gun. Alaska. You're going to get like Simba or something go carrying you off into the jungle. Pretty much. It's it's wild when you wake up in the morning because then you like, I mean, they start tracking the animals almost immediately to figure out what came through camp. And, mm-hmm. you know, you'll be out there and you'll be like, oh, look at that. A lion was right outside my door. Like probably sniffed me and decided not to come in that evening. It's just crazy. <clears throat> but anyway, so you show up and they kind of give you a tour of the camp and you they put you in your suite because it is i mean it has a toilet it's got a shower it's got an outside shower the second place we stayed in had a hot tub um all run by solar energy so there's Crazy. all sustainable there's no uh energy cost at all besides using the sun which is just awesome um and then i mean the food that they bring in i mean pretty much they feed you the entire time you're there but food is out of this world. I mean, they try to do their best to like integrate in the African culture into it, which I like a lot. But at the same time, I mean, you're eating burritos, you're eating Italian cooked meals, you're eating some African meals. And um, I, I'll, I'll give you the lay down now because pretty much it, it, it's not a relaxing trip at all. Neither is the Seychelles. Hmm. When you're in Africa, it's you wake up at 5.30, you have breakfast at six. Six to seven is breakfast. And then at seven o'clock, you do your first drive, they call it. So you get in the car with your guide and they start tracking animals and, and driving you around. And when I'm saying you start looking for animals, I mean, it's almost instant that you see animals. I mean, there's just elephants uh, and giraffes and zebras everywhere. They call them the usuals. So you're expecting to find those. And then Paula's are everywhere and kudu uh, and there's antelope everywhere. So those are the usuals. And after the second day, you're pretty much done with those, which is remarkable because, I mean, we were stoked to see elephants and stoked to see zebras. And after two days of that, you're like, I want to see something different. Like, show me a cheetah. Show me a lion, right? And the name of the game is really finding the lions. So we pretty much track lions all day. And finally, when we find them, you pretty much stick with them all day. And you just follow them around. And, I mean, you've all seen lions and hippos and giraffes and everything in the zoo. Yeah. But seeing it in the wild is a completely different beast. And I will get to fishing eventually here, but but let me just talk a little bit more about this because the lions are just sensational animals. And we were very lucky. So we got to see three kills when we were there. So we saw a female lion take down a zebra. Uh, and then in the daylight, it went back and got its cubs because there's cubs everywhere when you find lions. They always have cubs with them or there's young, immature females and males with them. But it's just really nice to see the circle of life coming together because nothing goes to waste there. Lions take down the, the animal. They eat it. They go get their cubs. The cubs get it. Uh, uh, the, the birds then eventually come down and eat it. It's just sensational to watch it all happen completely uh, uninterrupted and, and, and not interfered with at all. Um, but before, seeing lions... Before are, you catch up, real quick, just rewind but, this. I wanted to know, what's the vehicle you guys using? Like, mm. like, and like the odds of that line jumping on like the vehicle and stuff like that. Like, oh, you, you know me, the, the closest I ever get to a safari is freaking Six Flags. Okay. Six yeah, Flags Safari yeah. drive through. That's it. That's the closest I've ever gotten. So we are driving in Toyota Trailblazers is pretty much the car they use there. Shout out to Toyota. Um, and the way it's engineered is it has six seats in the back kind of stadium style. It's all open. There's no enclosure at all. So like a lion, if it really wanted to, could jump in, rip you out and eat you. Oh God. 
and uh, it doesn't happen. I don't want to say it's never happened, but it's almost impossible for it to happen. I mean, the guides really know the animals and they know the temperament and they can tell. So we had one day where a male lion literally walked right into the car. And I mean, it, you could touch him. You could you could stick your arm out and pet the kitty if you really wanted to. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, but. Yeah, don't way, do that. We're not at Tide Chasers. We're not recommending that you touch lions. Please the, do not bring meat. Please do not touch the lions. Yes. Um. So this one lion i mean in the way he described it pretty much the line was coming and he said do not stand up don't look at it in the eyes like if it starts looking at you like just like kind of do nothing um and he said that because the way lions see a vehicle is they just see a vehicle they don't see the person inside of it they perceive it as one giant object think about it being like an elephant they mm -hmm. see an elephant and they only see an elephant so they see a vehicle and they only see a vehicle so as soon as you stand up in that vehicle he realizes that there's something within that vehicle but there's something in the elephant per se. And then he will get very, very interested in it and, and maybe do something stupid. So when that happens, you just stay calm. You do nothing. And pretty much the lion walks up. They grew up with the animals or the vehicles because they pretty much follow them all day when they're cubs. They know not to touch the vehicles. And it's just a wild, wild experience for the lions just to walk up to the vehicles and just do absolutely nothing. And then just walk around them or walk by them. And you're just in awe the entire time. So two things I'm taking away that you need to have right now on your safari trip to Africa. One is an open one is an open mind. Yes. For all the new experiences. Two is a life insurance policy in case you, somebody in case somebody in your vehicle does stand up. So I'm you gonna are add, required I'm, I'm to gonna have add insurance. to that. I'm gonna add to that. You're gonna have, have you're gonna have to have a strong stomach too, because I remember the text we got from Bobby. He's like, dude, the smell and the the whole ordeal of the kill. It's out of this world. Why don't you describe that, that your first kill? Like, the, like what did the see? What did you see? The impact? The so, smell so the first kill we saw was um, two female lions who both had cubs, and we did a night drive. So I didn't even finish the day. So pretty much, let me go back mm -hmm. because you do your first drive, and your first drive is from seven to eleven, and in between that they do a coffee break, which is a really really nice perk. So like at nine o'clock they find a really nice plane with all these animals around, just the usuals, the non dangerous ones. And the, the Toyota Trailblazer has like this little table that flips down in the front and they have coffee break and cookies and nice. Um, it, it's really, really nice setup that they do really nice operation. And then afterwards you go back. So from 11 to three is siesta. Um, most of these places have a pool. You can go in the pool. Um, it's an outside pool. So like you're swimming with baboons, which is pretty wild as well. And then at three o'clock you come back, you have uh, high tea, they call it high tea which is like cakes and teas and everything kind of getting you ready for your next drive. And then from four to nine, you have your later afternoon drive. Um, and then at nine o'clock, you usually come back to camp or eight o'clock, you come back to camp and have dinner. And then our first kill, we actually, we, we told them we wanted to do a real night drive. So we went back out after dinner. So we went out at like nine 30, 10 o'clock at night. And it's very different than dark. You see some cooler animals. You see um, there's actually these these tiny little African cats. They're called wild African cats that only pretty much come out in the dark. Um, you see porcupines a lot in the dark and some other interesting cats and everything because everything's pretty much nocturnal. Yeah, so cheetahs too, right? I mean, not during the night. They're not. No, we, we got very lucky. So our first day we did see cheetah and it was cheetahs with the babies. Oh, cheetahs with the babies. Jesus, I'm not even drinking right now. We saw cheetahs with with uh, a mom with babies, which is very, very rare because the cheetahs are very hard to find because they move so much. 
Um, which is very interesting because the lions will come in and kill the cheetahs. Um, just a competition thing. They want to kill anything that's killing their animals in the area. So the next day we went back to the cheetah and you know what you find? You find lions instead because they can pick up the scent of the cheetah and they're going in to try to find the cheetah and kill the cheetah and all the babies. Um, luckily the cheetah left before that happened. So we were all good. Anyway, Whitechester cheetah had to find a new job. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, so we went back at it like 10 o'clock at night. And we were seeing not so much. You don't see as much. You see a couple cats, a porcupine and so forth. And you're driving around. And all of a sudden, we see this lion literally in the middle of the trail. And you can just tell it's doing something. It's up to it's up to no good. Um, and then all of a sudden, she's like moving real quick. And we're just following her and following her. And all of a sudden, you hear the zebras, which they make this whoop, 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 whoop. And then they, you can hear the hoofs going, vroom, 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 vroom. And we didn't know that there was another lion on the backside that was cornering the, the zebras. And all of a sudden it pushed the zebras into the car path that we were on. And this lion jumped out and just choked one to death. Literally. I mean, I have it on video. It's very, very, uh, I think it's incredible, but a lot of people would probably be skeeved out by it and think that it's not something you should be posting. So I didn't post it. RIP uh, zebra. Yeah. That zebra was a goner. And then as soon as it did that, the second lion shows up and, then you get to see it go to town and it's crazy cool to see them work. I mean, they immediately go for the guts because the guts are what spoils fast. So before they even go and get the cubs, they spend all night eating the guts. And then once they eat the guts, they go back and they'll get the cubs and bring the cubs in. So that was the first kill we saw in the dark. Um, after that, we were in our second camp and we saw them take out a baboon and a, a warthog, a pumba, which... Pumbaa was a lot cooler than actually the ones we saw in the dark because this was nine lions. So it was a pride of nine lions, mixed females and immature males. And I mean, we found them one morning and you they pretty much, they follow like in, in a line. I don't know how they communicate. I wish I understood how, but they follow just in a straight line as they're walking and moving. And then all of a sudden something happens. They, they pick up a scent, they see something and you just see these nine lions fan out and you know it's on. Like it's it's game time when they fan out. They smelt something. They see something. So they all fanned out and pretty much they cornered these warthogs and just, I mean, that's just a snack for a lion. They got this tiny little warthog and there's just five lions all eating this warthog at the same time fighting over this warthog. I mean, the noises they make, the smells, you you can't even imagine it until you see it. It's just out of this world. Um, the coolest experience is actually seeing this, the lions fail because to see them like, so they, we saw them this, again, this nine lion, this not this pride of nine lions. They chase down a uh, water Buffalo and water Buffalo is not something that you want to mess with at all. So there was four water Buffaloes and the name of the game is to separate one. And the guy's telling us all of this because he's seen it a hundred times, but like a water Buffalo, uh, four of them will, you can't take them down. You have to get one all by itself. And pretty much you saw the game start. So the nine lions pretty much surround the water buffaloes and they try to separate one. They taunt one. It comes after them. They think you're going to get it. But then a second one comes in and saves the water buffalo. So it's kind of just like this tug and play kind of, I think, that we have going on here between the lions. And it got to a point where they said, screw it, we're done. And then all the lions just kind of lie down and the water buffaloes just walk away. So they won. Um there was one more incident I'll talk about, and then I think we'll get to the Seychelles. So there's one more incident where we saw the lions surround a group of zebras. Um, and it was by that watering hole that had the catfish that I mentioned earlier. And pretty much 
I mean, it's in this tall grass and you see the lions every once in a while, they like stick their heads up and you can see a lion. You're like, oh my God, there's one there. Oh my God, there's one there. And you just see them working their way around this zebra pack. And all of a sudden, one of the younger immature ones jumps early. And it jumped early and the zebras start running. You hear them go whoop, whoop, whoop. And the hoof's going and everything and pretty much spoiled it for everyone. And lions are slow. I didn't realize that. Well, they could take us down. But like they cannot catch a zebra. They're very slow, very lazy. So they rely on the pride a lot. Unlike a cheetah. A cheetah will just run and run and run and run and take it down. Um, but that was the end of that too. So like he spoiled the fun for everyone. They all just kind of crawled out of the weeds and went to go get a drink of water. And that was it until the night. Just the insane. Only, the only thing I'm picturing that could have made this even more cool is if on your trip in the vehicle with you was David Attenborough narrating it in his British accent. Like you said, the English every, accent would have been fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Every nature documentary ever made. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's what I was experienced. I mean, I didn't realize how often that happens in Africa. When I watch a documentary, you know, like when you watch a fishing video on YouTube, pretty much they only show like the highlight. They show the good moment of yeah. them catching a fish. But in Africa, there's no dull moments. I mean, you find the lions, they're doing something crazy. I mean, they're chasing, they're failing, they're eating. Uh, the same thing when you just follow any animal. I mean, even baboons. Baboons are just incredible creatures that just do dumb things. Like they'll run into camp and actually they'll break into your tent and steal all your crap and like throw it all over. Or they'll just <laughs> run up to the table and steal some food. And um, it's just so compared compare to something that, you know, you could turn on the TV and watch on animal planet, you know, any nature show. Is it, is it, you know, it's actually like that or it's just like that. Perfect. It's just like that. And I mean, I could even like, if I could take all the video that I shot, I would be able to make a planet earth kind of show just by narrating it. I mean, you just, they pretty much just shoot all day and then narrate what they saw, right? And make a, a little bit of a backstory that the lion saw the zebras and the young one jumped early. It's pretty much exactly what I said. I think you but, should narrate it and put it I, together. I, I'd pay I, good I, money I, to see that. I think, I think you should send me the footage. I'll edit it into a a, a planet planet style video, and then you could just voice over with a with an English accent. Certainly, certainly could do that. Um, but I would say let's do like drunk Africa. I think it'll be funnier. I'll drink as we do it. And as you get more and more into it, I'll just get drunk. Do like drunk history. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll do that. And I was going to say, I mean, no wonder you didn't have any fear. You were talking about all that South African wine earlier. Yeah, right. It's, it's no well, wonder. So they do, they do a, they do a sundowner too. So at the end of the day, they open up the truck table again and they, you drink and have gin and tonics and um, they surprise you like crazy too. I mean, we were in one situation where, they said, we're going to go check out the locals. And they pretty much bring you into this field. And the whole camp and cookout is now in the field. They've just brought everything down to the field. And they cook you dinner right there on grills. Animals, again, running around. And the staff, the hospitality, out of this world. It puts America to shame. It really does. They That's will do everything for you and anything for you to make your trip enjoyable, which is how I think everywhere should be. But it's a whole new level in Africa. So ten out of so ten, roughly, definitely, not definitely roughly. recommended. Ten out of ten. Honestly, so if I was to, if I was to tell you to either do Africa or do the Seychelles, well, there's one thing I'd recommend. I would go to Africa when there's water, so you could do some fishing while you were yeah. there, because I really wanted to catch a tiger fish, but I had no shot. Um, but if I was to tell you, if I was to go back and do Africa or the Seychelles again, I actually would probably pick Africa again. It's that incredible. Okay. Um, the Seychelles is awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong. Do I think you should go to the Seychelles? Is it worth all that money? 
Absolutely. But if you have to produce something, I'd say go to Africa and experience that because it's just so much more wild and wilderness out there than you'll ever see in the Seychelles. Especially, I mean, and then you appreciate the whole circle of life kind of thing. You know, Lion King, that's the best way. Lion King, it's true. The whole thing is true. It's every real. part about so that, that. So that's our live action remake of The Lion King. Every, every, yeah, everything is true. I mean, I didn't realize how true it was. I mean, even the thing like, getting back into lines for a second but like male lines eventually leave the pride that's how it works so like when they kick simba out of the pride actually he just leaves in the movie yeah that's actually what happens in the wild they leave the pride and then after a couple years they actually come back so the lion king story is completely true and there's baboons everywhere and there's warthogs and 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 we did not see timones we did not have any of the what are they called Uh, meerkats meerkats yeah i was gonna say weasels a lot of weasels. There is a lot of weasels, but not meerkats. I want to wow. go back a second on what you what you were saying about how you know you would actually pick the Africa safari that you did over the the Seychelles, and I think it kind of makes sense because this, although it's really busy, like you said, you're always doing something. It's it's a relaxing kind of busy. You know, there's no pressure. Whereas when you go to the Seychelles, when you're there for a limited amount of time, and if you're going, yeah. you, it's your bucket list trip. You're going there to catch. A, a certain species or certain species of fish that's, you know you put a lot of pressure on yourself when you finally get to one of those bucket list uh trips to try to make it the dream that you always had yep and that's one of the things i was going to talk about with the seychelles because it is exactly what you said it's like you go to the seychelles and you're going to catch a gt well maybe you're not because <laughs> the gts might not show up the gts you know, they may break you off every single time and Fortunately for my wife, she was not able to land a GT. And that kind of put like a a stigma on the whole end of the trip for her because she was not able to land that GT. And that's like the reason you go to the Seychelles. So like I could see that being a big Debbie Downer for somebody that goes to the Seychelles and doesn't catch the GT. I'd cry. I'd moan. I'd be Yeah, you pay all that money and you don't get to do it, right? But for Africa, you go there and it's like, holy crap, there's all these animals running around and you know, you see a bunch of stuff and there's nothing that will ever let you down. And um, it's, and it's if, a sick, sick experience. You know, it's a yeah, sick experiment. Exactly. So, cool. okay. So let's get to the Seychelles though, because it is also a sick experience. Mm-hmm. So the Seychelles, to get to the Seychelles. So we actually had to helicopter out of our camps after spending six days there. Helicoptered back to Botswana. Then we did Botswana to Mahi, which is the main island, which is a cool place. I mean... Lots of marinas around, beaches, uh, mountains. Um, we didn't know at the time, but there was tortoises there. I'll talk about the tortoises in a second because it's actually the only other place in the world that has like natural tortoises besides the Galapagos. Um, so we overnighted in Mahi, and then in the morning, you take a, a puddle jumper over to the island you're going to. So this was Alphonse for us, which was another hour flight. <clears throat> And we're talking uh, about very, very small islands. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, these I mean, are not the big whole islands. island is three miles. And you're saying there's like 150 of these islands around that whole area. Well, there's 155 islands. I don't know how many are big enough to like land a plane, but this one, Farquhar, uh, Cosmolito is another very well known one. Like they all have some airstrips on them. Okay. Um, so are they, are they real airstrips or are they like chunks of dirt and land flattened down to be no, this one is this one is a real airstrip it's okay. paved and everything but uh pretty much you have the airstrip and then you have the resort or beach bungalows and that's it the main mode of transportation is bicycle which is awesome so you like wake up in the morning you grab your fishing gear you jump up on your bicycle 
and you go wherever you want to go. Tour uh, de Seychelles. Pretty much. What? I said Tour de Seychelles, you know, like yeah. Tour de France. Exactly. So the first day we were there, we actually did the whole island. We just biked the three miles. There's a bike trail that goes all the way around. And you get to see kind of the inner workings of the island. Um, let me get back to the plane ride because it's just a funny story. Because the plane ride, we get there and it's this little puddle jumper. And anyone that's been in the puddle jumper, I think immediately has this fear of it like just crashing and burning on them because it's, you know, I don't know. They're just a lot less safe in my mind. Although I think they're they're just the same thing. But anyway, so we get on this puddle jumper and we're there and it's sitting on the airstrip and it's it's a thousand degrees in there. I am dying inside because it's just sitting on the airstrip. It's heating up. There's no AC yet. They load us up on this thing. There's like, I want to say it's 20 of us on this plane. And we get there and they start the plane up and we're like, okay, great. And then we're still sitting there and we're sitting there and we're sitting there. And finally the pilot turns around and goes, okay, we're going to have to deplane because there's something wrong with the plane. Oh, comforting. Okay. So we all get off the plane and he goes, we're going to get the mechanic to come in and figure this out for us. Oh, Okay. We're not off the plane for like five minutes and the pilot goes, all right, we're good to go. Oh, okay. So we all get back on the plane. Uh, and luckily, I guess the mechanic figured it out and everything was good, but it was very scary in the beginning. I was very worried. My butt was puckered. Bobby's like, I know how this movie ends. I've seen yeah, it a bunch. I've seen yes, this movie yes. a bunch of times. I've seen Cast Away before and that's what I'm envisioning. <laughs> Although I have all my fishing gear with me, so it'd be okay. But um, no volleyball, so it wouldn't have been okay. No, no, no volleyball, no Wilson. Um, I'm skipping a lot because one of the bigger problems with our trip was packing, and I can get into what to bring and what not. Yeah, to that's bring. what I was gonna. I was gonna ask about. But we, we should definitely talk about that because there's a strict weight limit of 33 pounds. Okay. Which to pack for a week, and in our case, two weeks, was very, very difficult. Especially you, you guys, did, you, like, right? Because you guys did two trips. You did one in Africa, and then you guys doing this one. So. How, you, how much did you pack for Africa and how much did you pack for here, you know? Exactly. So, I mean, we had 33 pounds and pretty much 32 of that was fishing gear for me. <laughs> so, only kidding. It was close. It was only like 30. Anyway, so so you have to pack very strategically and very smart. And the nice thing is they do laundry there. So in Africa, the laundry is free. In the Seychelles, nothing is free, but they do laundry for you, um, which is a nice, a nice perk. So you don't actually have to pack too intensely. You don't need a pair of clothes for every day. Uh, and frankly, you're wearing the same sun shirt and the same sun pants every single day anyway that you're there. So anyway, so we land in the Seychelles, we get there. Um, and the resort is is like you would imagine. It is like a beach resort. I mean, it's got an outside bar. Um, it's got tables outside, pool. Uh, I mean, we were on beach bungalows, which literally are right up to the beach. You could step outside and catch bonefish all you want pretty much all day long. Tell us a little um, bit more about what that beach bungalow is. Like, paint the picture in our mind for us about so the, so the what beach is bungalow is. It, it's kind of it's an A-frame. At least the one we were in was an A-frame, um, and it has a mini split air conditioning system, which is nice. It's got uh, a big bed, obviously, front porch. The back side of it is your bathroom, and there's actually a tub on the inside, and then outside is your outdoor shower. So it's it's very very livable, and I mean, very nice amenity: mini bar, mini fridge snacks again you have to pay for all that but it's all there if you want it um i mean they sold me on the ac any any resort that has an yeah, ac i'm so sold that was 
Africa did not have AC. Africa, um, most of the nights actually it does big swings. So like the nights in Africa, like 50s, 60s in April. That's not bad then. So you go to sleep sweating. You wake up at 3 a.m. because you hear a lion roar in the background in the distance. You start sweating some more. Yeah. (laughs) Butt puckers, as I like to say. Uh, And then you're freezing the rest of the night because it's so cold. Um. All right, back to Seychelles, though. So we show up in the Seychelles. They welcome us. You know, they pretty much throw alcohol and a coconut into your hand, which is awesome. <laughs> um, and then pretty much it's game on. So pretty much it's like you go unpack, and then one thirty, you got to be down at the fishing hut to go over all your gear, and they set up all your gear and figure out what you have and what you don't have. Because you have to bring your own gear with you. Right. I, mean, I know we're going to talk about gear in a little bit, but – yeah, I think maybe that's one of the biggest things is that on some of these destination trips, you know, maybe we're used to like you go out with a, a guide or a captain, they can, provide you know, gear. most of the time they provide you with your gear unless you bring your own. Here, you yeah. have to bring your own. There is no. Yeah. So you don't have to bring your own. You can rent oh, okay. everything for them. Oh, okay. I'm assuming it's an arm. Uh, I'm assuming it's an arm and a leg to rent a full 12 weight outfit. It's it's actually only $100 to rent the full 12 weight outfit for like the week. You have to pay for the line. So the line actually, the end of it is yours. So I actually have 12 weight line now with no rod or no reel. So it pretty much, we'll call it $100 for the line. Okay. And then 12 weight's yours. But if you didn't bring any flies, you have to pay for every single fly. And if you break one off and you don't have that fly, you then are shit out of luck and you have to either go buy a new one and so forth. So it gets very expensive very quickly. So I would highly recommend looking at what you need to bring and um have a kind of a nice arsenal you don't need everything because there's going to be something that they like better they have like they have certain fly patterns that work better out there and they want you to use theirs so there's this guy out there called yusuf um and he's got this yusuf crab that's like the trigger pattern winner every single time so that's like we bought five of those obviously because you have to right and and five dollars a pop you end up spending thirty dollars on flies in the first minute you're there and you know, if there's a GT fly that they like better, purple and black, and you have red and black, well, then, of course, you're going to end up buying that anyway. So we ended up buying, like, I'd say probably 20-ish flies when we were out there, even though I brought a lot. Um, we did lose a lot of flies. I mean, it is coral heads you're fishing on. So having a lot of flies is not a bad thing. Um, Where was I in this story, though? Okay, so you, you go. Well, I was going to say, let's, 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 let's track it back, and let, let's break down what you brought from home. Like, did you do your research, like any little research before you so, actually So it? Yellow Dog and Alphonse send you this nice, um, I have it right here. They have a Seychelles packing list. No, very nice. Um, and some of this, honestly, is what you need. And the other stuff on here is kind of like, you really don't need it. Like, I'll okay. some examples on this list are nippers, hemostats, nail knot tools. Mm-hmm. Like, guides know how to tie nail knots. They have nippers, they have cutters. So you don't actually even need that. This is kind of more like if you're going on your own. Yeah, like a DIY. You kind of tailor this list to whether or not you're going with a guide and whatnot to. So for me, I brought uh I brought two rods with me. I brought a nine weight. No, I brought an eight weight and a ten weight. And then I actually rented a nine and a twelve while I was out there. So we had the full set of we had eight, nine, ten, twelve. Twelve. Okay. Um, pretty much the twelve was for GTs, the eight and the nine was for um bonefish and triggers and then the 10 weight was actually for milkfish which we'll talk about um you need a lot of leaders a lot of leaders so one of the things i've realized so they make you bring tippet material um 
And the tip of material is really if they decide to do uh, like a furled leader or something or like a Bimini twist kind of idea. And, mm -hmm. and honestly, most of the guides just didn't care for that. They just wanted to use your nice tapered leader. Uh, it's easier. It's quicker. They do not like Tippet. They're so against Tippet, which I didn't realize at the time, which makes perfect sense because when you tie Tippet on, I mean, you're in the trout stream, right? Yeah. You tie Tippet on because when you lose a, a fly or you get stuck in a tree, you don't have to tie in a new leader every single time. Right. You just want to break at the Tippet. You can tie and you Tippet on. Your leader stays exactly nine feet long and you move on from there. But in the Seychelles, if you break off a fish because the Tippet knot sucks, you're going to cry. Like if you break a GT off because your Tippet knot was bad, you're going to cry. So they decide to just pretty much do no knots. There's no knots in the leader at all. It's just leader right to fly. Makes sense. Um, I mean, it's a, it that's, a, that's, that's a lot of salt fishing, salt water fishing we do here anyway. We go leader straight to flies and we're done. We're, we're, we're yeah, I pretty much. But even with salt water, I still like to use tippet because yeah. then you blow through tippets. I mean, as you tie on new flies and as you break off a bonefish and tie a new fly on, right, your tippet gets shorter and shorter yeah, and shorter. shorter yeah. So you blow through leaders. So I would highly recommend bringing a ton of like 12 leaders. to 16 pound leaders, a couple 20 pound leaders. Um, and then for the GTs, you really just need 50 pound tippet material or fluorocarbon and then a hundred pound fluorocarbon. And that you're not really, it's not really a leader. It's just a giant piece of line that you're mono or, yeah, yeah, mono or floral. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, as far as flies go, I mean, it's your standard run in the mill kind of, you need a lot of bonefish flies. I was on a bonefish flat. So um, your crazy Charlies, your gotcha flies, um, your flexo crabs for triggers and bones. Um, there's a whole bunch of different crab patterns you could buy. Um, just, just have a good arsenal with different colors. I mean, have your chartreuse, have your browns, because you just never know what's going to work better that day. And pretty much... When me and Tabby were fishing, we would pretty much always start out with bone fishing in the morning because of the way the tides were. Um, and I would put in the green and she would put in the brown and we'd figure out which crazy Charlie would work better that day. And then kind of somebody would switch over and so forth. Um, GTs, you need GT flies, you need brush flies, you need beast flies. Um, big stuff. Yeah, big, big stuff. I mean, a big beast fly is is killer out there. Um Definitely the only thing that I you definitely need to bring, and you could also buy it there, but I would just get it, is wading boots. Mm -hmm. You're wading around on coral heads. You have to have wading boots. And I would highly recommend also getting socks with that as well. So like the sand and gravel doesn't get in there. But so I have these Sims wading shoes. It pretty much is just our glorified pair of sneakers, but that's a must. Everything else you can just get there, but you need a good pair of sneakers. Um, and then, of course, the last really, really important thing is sunglasses. Have to have sunglasses. If you don't have sunglasses, you, pretty much you're not going to catch anything because you have to see the fish to catch the fish here. Um, and I'll probably say this a bunch of times, but the thing I learned the most about saltwater fishing in this scenario, and I've already knew it, is it's always about opportunities. You only get so many shots. And if you're not ready and you're not prepared and you miss an opportunity there may not be another opportunity and that may be the end of it. So you need to capitalize on as many opportunities as you can. This isn't trout fishing where you could flow the dry fly over them a hundred times. This is that GT comes in, you got two shots at it before he sees the boat and spooks. Um, and the other thing I realized is I always heard, and you guys probably have always heard the same distance. You need to have distance. You need to cast far. You need to be able to cast it mm. 80, 90 feet easily. I would 
highly disagree with that at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, these fish get really close. I mean, they're 30, 40 feet away from the boat, and you pretty much have a shot every single time. The thing that killed Tabby the most was accuracy. You have to drop this fly on a dime, especially with triggers, which I'm going to talk about triggers a lot, and we can <laughs> yell at Rex. Can't wait. God damn, was he right? <laughs> I hate triggers with a burning passion. Um, but you have to drop that fly within, uh, I don't know, three feet of a trigger. And if you put it too much to the right of him, he's not going to see it. And you pretty much, you'll drag it over and spook him. And if you put it on top of him, well, he's definitely gone. And kind of the same with GTs. I mean, they always say for a GT, you want to throw it anywhere but on top of the fish. Um, but you still have to get it close. Yeah. Right. They have crazy good eyesight, but you still have to be close and in the game. Uh, so let me ask you this, Bobby. What what could you do, you know, whether it's going to the the Seychelles or just some other bucket list saltwater fly fishing destination? What can an angler do at home to prepare for some of those things like you were talking about with the accuracy um, and maybe even a little bit of the distance, but, you know, yeah, most of so the accuracy before you most go. Most of the accuracy. I mean, so th- there's two important concepts you need to learn. The, the first is a double haul. And it's not so much for the distance. It's because of the wind. When the wind kicks up, you have to be able to at least get the fly line 30, 40 feet. Uh, and sometimes you're throwing directly into the wind, which is a pain in the ass, but it happens and you got to do it. Um, so, I mean, I would just go on your lawn and learn the double haul. Got no single hauls, got to be the doubles. Um, and just practice and practice and practice. Watch the YouTube videos. It's a really good Orvis series you can watch on how to double haul. Um, as far as the accuracy goes, and what I did with Tabby beforehand was I set up like, Literally, they were Halloween decorations, and I kind of set them up at 60 feet, 70 feet, 80 feet, and kind of moved it around and said, like, hit that and hit that. Now, the only thing that she also struggled with is being ready. Oh, yeah. um, you have to be ready to go. I mean, you get the fishes. It's like uh, fish, cast, 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 cast. And if you don't cast in time, well, the fish is gone. Um, and that was one thing we didn't practice. So you have to really practice, like, having a line in your hand. And then in a second, shooting at the 40 yards or sh- shooting at the 40 feet that you need to cast. So those are the three things I would practice. I would, it's speed, it's a double haul, and then it's the accuracy and just by hitting targets. And I mean, I've seen people do the hula hoop thing, but they put hula hoops everywhere. Mm-hmm. I don't think you really need that. You would just throw at something and just make sure you're at least a foot away from it, if that. And then practice both on the right side and the left side because the fish move, right? The fish start swimming. They start moving left. So you got to go to the left side of them. He turns around. He goes to the right. And then you got to throw to the right of them. Um, so this is not a trip I would recommend for any buddy that's not skilled, I have to say. That being said. What are you trying you to say, Bobby? You're trying to say I couldn't go there and be successful? No, I, I, think you'd be, I think you'd be okay there, but I think you would still struggle. Oh, I I'm, definitely would. I'm thinking about um, myself right now, like, can I do this? I don't know if I do this. And it's not an insulting thing at all. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's part of the game here. I mean, I, I struggled some days too, especially with triggerfish. I threw at 50 triggerfish one day and <laughs> it just never happened. We did that, we did we skipped the one part. Um line wise, like what lines are you guys usually throwing? Oh, it's pretty much I mean Alphonse is a Cortland dealer. It's all floating lines. All floating okay. just matched with your your rod. So 12 okay. weight 12 weight line. Gotcha. Nothing. I mean, always warm water because we're in warm water and it's very, yeah. very hot out. Um, I want to ask you one more question about the um about the gear and the preparation because you know we were going through all the gear and there's probably a lot of people who were listening thinking, geez, it sounds like a lot of money, which it is. 
But at the same time, you know, if, if you're committed to going and you get yourself to the point where you can go, how do you kind of, I guess, come to peace with the money thing? You know, when you get there and you're thinking like, oh, I've already spent X number of dollars, but they're telling me that if I have this, then I'll, I'll probably have a greater chance at catching the fish. Like, how do you just get there and say, you know what, I'm here. I already spent X amount of dollars. I'm just going to do it because I want to make the most out of it. Yep. Suck it up, buttercup. That's pretty much all I got for you. Um, And that thought that you said ran through mine and Tabby's mind like a hundred times during this trip where we would be like, do we really need those poppers? Do we? And I mean, it always came down to the same thing. We're here. We spent this much money. What's an extra 50 bucks? You know, what's an extra hundred dollars? I mean, even if we ended up spending an extra thousand, I mean, for what we paid for this trip and you guys can look it up, I will not say the number. Uh, an extra thousand is a drop in the bucket. I mean, just make it so you have a successful trip and and get what you need out of it because it is maybe the trip of a lifetime for some people. Yeah, uh, it probably will be for me. I don't know if I'll ever be back. I hope so. Um, is there a way that you can kind of split it up? You know, like if you're booking a charter for let's say like an overnight tuna trip, you know, you can split it up amongst a couple people. Is there a way to do that with this? There, there is, and and you can if you really want to, but. Um, just be known. So there's two people on a boat plus a guide. And they, I always compare it to trout fishing because that's what I know best. So in trout fishing, you know, there's two people in a boat and a, and a guide. Mm-hmm. Um, but both guys can throw in a trout boat. Yeah. Both guys cannot throw here. So if you want to take that risk, so you can split it with another person. You can book the boat and have an open seat, which they will fill. But then just let it be known that like the GT comes in and you might not be the one throwing. And for me, I couldn't come to peace with that. I was like, no, we. I want to be the one throwing. I want Tabby to be the one throwing. I'm not going to give that stranger a shot at our fish because of, of what I just said. Yeah, And it's a little bit selfish, right? But at the same time, like you said, we paid this much for that trip and I want to make sure I get every opportunity I can to do what I want to do. So essentially, yeah. if you're going to go with someone else, you should go with somebody that you know and that you're comfortable with. You yeah, know, if that you're that you're okay turn. with like if we went together and I saw you catch a GT, I would be stoked. I would be so happy for you. But if I was with Joe Schmo, I'd be like, I'd be like, shit. Like that could have been my keep, GT. You can keep the GT. I want the trigger. That dude triggers. That's why I want the trigger. Well, that's why we're we're, we're gonna get into here. All right, all right let's, let, let me finish the, the whole setup here. So okay, we get to the the actual fish here because so you end up at the gear shop at one thirty your first day. Um, they set you up with everything you need. They see what you're missing. They figure it out if you're gonna be okay, and pretty much you'll be fine if you have some gear. And then they supplement in some other gear, and they have the rest of the day to fish for yourself. So the first day we were there, we asked them like, well, "What do we do?" And they were like, "Well, go walk around the flats and have a good time." And Alphonse is bonefish flat, which I actually didn't know at first. Like we were just going to Alphonse because that's the place to go. It is a bonefish flat. Bonefish down there are like sunfish. So when I was talking about like you, you need to be a good fly angler to, to go here and you need to like have distance and accuracy. Well, well, for bonefish, you do not. And there was many people on this trip that never fly fished, that never even knew what a fly rod was. They were just, there was one person, she was hysterical um she was just there because she was a caretaker of somebody pretty much and she's never fished in her entire life and she caught a bonefish on the fly pretty much her first time trying that's how i won't i don't want to say it's easy because it's not easy to catch a bonefish 
but they're like sunfish down there. They're just everywhere. Like heaven. Multiple, multiple opportunities. Um, one guy caught 20 in one day. I mean, there's many people that catch way over 20 in a day. And it gets to the point where you pretty much you go out with the guide <clears throat> and pretty much you start with bonefish. And I could you could always tell like the guide's like, all right, are we done with bonefish? Like, I'm so sick of bonefish. Like, let's go do something different. Like, let's get out of here and go for a real fish, um, which is incredible. I mean, so if you want to catch bonefish on the fly, like this is the place to go. There's no other place. I mean, I went to Key West. Quad, you've been to Key West too, mm-hmm. bone fishing. When I was there, I saw one bonefish all day. Now, luckily, I ended up catching that bonefish when I was in Key West. But could you imagine going bone fishing in the Seychelles and you only see one bonefish? It'd be heartbreaking. It'd be yeah, absolutely it terrible. So it won't happen because there's just so many bonefish out there. Um, well, you even did them in the Turks and Caicos too. Did right? the Turks and Caicos? It's yeah. We saw maybe two pods of Turks and the Caicos bones. It is just a whole other world out there with bonefish. Um, the things that are scarce are the GTs. The GTs are very scarce on Alphonse. So you have to go to Cosmolito if you want GTs for sure. Um, and this is where the opportunity comes in because pretty much we would see, <clears throat> I want to say one GT a day and maybe you didn't even get a shot at it. Um, so if you want GTs, I'd go someplace other than Alphonse. But if you want to shout at like everything and a lot of fun catching bonefish, Alphonse is the place to go. Um. So the That's first thing we were there, we pretty much waited around, caught a bunch of bonefish. I got a bonefish on the fly. Tabby got a bonefish on the fly the first day. So I was pretty much like, we're set. Like, this is awesome. You go to sleep. You wake up in the morning. Kind of the same deal. You uh, have to wake up at 6 to be at the breakfast at 6.30. Um, 6.30, they serve you breakfast. It's an awesome breakfast, of course. Eggs made to go, pancakes, whatever you want. Uh, pretty much I never really took advantage of it because I didn't want to crap my pants on the boat. I'm pretty sure a lot of people think that way. <laughs> yep. Most of us fishermen think that way. Um, yep, I am we, also one of them. Yeah. So kind of a shame. Our last day I went crazy. Like we weren't fishing that day. I went, I got, um, uh, there's there. I'll tell you about it afterwards, but there was these banana, uh, French toast. It was just killer. And we had one guy on the trip, um, who was like anti-banana. He was so against, bringing bananas on the boat he didn't want to eat a banana in the morning because of that whole myth of no bananas on the boat man um it is kind of interesting um, though the one thing that you mentioned about is you know like when you if you go online one of the first toys i learned about seychelles was i found that article on yellow dog fly fishing's website it's like top species to catch in seychelles and they give you this rundown of like the top 10 species mm -hmm. which you know you might just think like i did reading that article oh you know, they're probably all over the islands. But when I was talking to you about this, it's actually, depending on what you want, you know, you might want to pick a island to go to. Yeah, Because you like you said, on your boat. island, GTs were scarce, whereas in other places, they're, you know, more common. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely something I wish I researched a little more because I went in kind of blind. But the atoll we were on, Alphonse Atoll, is a bonefish flat. Cosmolito and Farqua are... Um, those atolls are more known for GTs and they also have those bump head parrotfish that come in every once in a while. Um, you don't really get those on Alphonse at all. So there's no shot at catching parrotfish at all. You get permit every once in a while, you get the bonefish, GTs, milkfish, triggers. That's pretty much it. Um, all right. So you pretty much, you wake up, you have breakfast, really cool setup because they pack you a lunch. So you go and you like tell the chef what you want. They make you a sandwich. 
they pack it up real nice with an apple, a piece of banana bread. Um, oh, and that was what it was. It was it was banana bread French toast. So they took the banana bread from the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this guy Todd we were with, who was hysterical. He was so he didn't take the banana bread ever. Like bananas in any form were not allowed in his lunch. I took the banana bread. It was so good. So anyway, they make you lunch: sandwich, banana bread, apple, uh, Snickers bar, and you bring that with you on the boat. Um, then we actually we end up fishing in Alphonse. You end up fishing Saint Francis or Francois um, Atoll, which is like a quick forty minute boat ride out of the Alphonse Atoll to that atoll, and it's just more space. There's just more area to fish there. You could fish Alphonse, but it's very very crowded and not so much space. And this boat so is a skip, actually, right? We're talking about it's just a small Yeah, skip. so de- it depends on the weather. So we ended up um, having some very windy days. So they thought it was unsafe to take the skiffs across. So they load you up in a giant catamaran. And they actually tow like three or four skiffs out behind the catamaran to get you out there, which is a, a huge operation. I mean, shout out to all the guides. They work crazy hard to get us out there and put us on fish. Um. And that's pretty much it. Then you they load you up in the skiffs, and it's a rotation of guides. So you have a different guide every day. So the first day I had Gary, um, who we had an incredible day. This is when I ended up catching my GT and my trigger. Um, and then you just pretty much every day is a new a new guy with a new technique and a new strategy, which is really cool. I mean, so I had Gary, Reese, Chase, Jason B, uh, somebody else. I can't even remember. Um <laughs> But really cool. Just you just meet a bunch of people and you you learn a bunch of different guides. You learn about their techniques and uh, pretty much every morning you get in the catamaran with the same group of people. So by the end of the trip, you're buddy buddies with them. Like I think they're probably going to be lifelong friends at this point, which also made the trip awesome. The fishing was great, but the friendships are even better. Is pretty much how I always rate all my trips. Um, and that's pretty much it. So you do that every single day. So you fish from seven to four or five o'clock. You're friggin' beat afterwards you come back in in the catamaran you have dinner and um they do uh a kind of like a fishing recap which is really cool they hand out these little pins i think i have some around yeah so depending on what you catch um they give you a little pin no uh, way yeah so you have this like this little you guys can't see it but you have like this alphonse fishing company pin uh, this one has cool. a trigger fish on it that's a life um, goal right there Tabby was real mad because she never got one of these. So like, this is the GT. Uh, right here. Uh, um, but they do. It's really cool because they do like this nice recap and you get to see who caught what. Um, how'd everyone do? <laughs> and it's really special because then you get to congratulate everyone. They give you a shot with your pin. So you take a shot as well. And then you have dinner and then the bar lights up and you have a good night usually. I want to ask you, Bobby, you know, as we're getting into talking about the fishing, we've talked a lot about GTs or giant trevally. Um, for those that don't really know what a GT is, what is it that makes them this special fish that people travel around the world to seek out a GT? Yeah, they're, uh, I don't know. I have a different perspective on them now that I fish for them, but usually you think about them as kings of the sea. I mean, they are vicious creatures that attack at lightning speed rates. I mean, if you see one come after your fly, it is heart pounding excitement the way it comes in. Um, And and not only that, I mean, just seeing them, I mean, they're big meter long fish. So they're three feet long. Um, They're aggressive as all hell. I mean, they'll swim in a foot of water. They'll kind of do what they call bow wake. So like as they're swimming, you can see the weight coming off 
It's actually one of the ways you find GTs is by looking for these bow wakes, but they'll swim sideways in a foot of water to attack prey. <clears throat> um, they're just they're just beasts. I mean, and then they eat your fly and um can you compare them to maybe Jack Creval? That's some, you know, yeah, I would say it's a more aggressive, more powerful Jack Creval. Yeah. In Mexico, they actually call them uh Jack Revals or Mexican GTs. So they are uh crazy, crazy powerful fish, and you are fishing with hundred pound leader. Uh, the first day I was there when I hooked my first one, I fought it like a bonefish. And my guy, Gary, he actually commented on my post. He, he yelled, lock it down. It's not a bonefish. And you pretty <laughs> much you just lock the drag the entire way because they're not dumb. They're smart. They'll swim over a coral head and rip you off and they'll break a hundred pound test like it's it's butter. Um, well, did you hear that? Somebody's yelling at Bobby while he's fly fishing for a change. Right? Tell me about it. There was, there was two. There was two incidents with Gary where he yelled at me because <clears throat> with the trigger fish as well. So we're you're on a coral head. You have to envision that we're on top of a coral head, uh, and the trigger fish is eating in like a foot of water. You hook the trigger, he immediately starts swimming for the edge to go into a hole, and if you let him get into a hole, it's over. He's going to cut you off on the coral head, and it's done. I mean, you're only fishing with twenty pound test, so if a hundred pound can break, twenty pound will definitely break. So Gary yelled at me again. He's pretty much said, do not let that thing get over the edge. And I thought for sure I was going to lose this fish. And it hovered right on the edge and then finally turned around and came back at me and we got it. Um, wish I had the whole thing on video, but it was pretty cool. So, I mean, GTs are awesome. They're awesome fish. Honestly, if I was to pick a fish to go after, it wouldn't be GTs. It would be anything but. They're fun. The fight... Mm, you know it's kind of like a muskie you know muskies are really powerful really strong fish but how long is a muskie fight not very long uh, not as long 15, as maybe 20 sometimes seconds. yeah sometimes a muskie fight is two seconds right you hook the thing yeah. it flops on the surface they net the thing yeah right? yep. well you're fishing with a fly rod here so he's got some power on you so he takes off but i mean the whole gt fight was five minutes i think and then he kind of peters out and i mean you have him locked down so he can't go anywhere it's kind of like the reason you're fishing with such heavy tackle in the 100-pound leader is almost like when you do with musky fishing, you're trying to absorb the initial shock of that yeah. hit and the initial pull and run, and then, you know, that's what it's meant to do. Well, right, maybe, that, right. that, you, that, maybe that's the big thing difference, though, because GTs on flats probably act a lot different than GTs in deep water because we watch, we see the guys on the barrier reefs like Brooksies, and then when they hook into, like, we're talking about 30, 40-kilogram you know, kilo GTs, they're they're ripping drags off these like twenty thousand K Stellas and stuff. You know what I mean? Right, right. But the whole fight still is not only. I mean, I, I want to put it under ten minutes. Yeah. I mean, I fought striped bass for longer than ten minutes sometimes. Right. I mean, like, you catch a big striper, he fights you. Like the GTs, they kind of do a couple big runs and they're done. They're just spent. They just, I mean, gave it their their all and just we're done. Yeah. Um. Unlike milkfish. <laughs> all right, let's do this milkfish thing. I. I hate triggers because they don't eat anything. I hate milkfish. I never want to catch another milkfish in my entire life. Milkfish. What a milkfish is. Tell so us what a milkfish, milkfish is. is kind of like a mix between like a bonefish and a tarpon or a shad. Like that's what it looks mm. like. I mean, it's this big, shiny, scaly fish with a with a forked tail at the end, uh, and they pretty much they act like tarpon. You hook it, it jumps, it runs. 
But milkfish have a mouth like a carp, though, right? Like a yeah. Big, so they they actually there's, so they don't eat meat. They eat only algae and green leafy things. Pretty much only algae. And what are you throwing at them? They don't eat meats. Yeah. So you're you're fishing this fly that they came up with out there. I think Yusuf also came up with it out there, but it's called this Milky Dream. Pretty much imagine like a salmon egg kind of idea, a hook with a salmon egg, and then it's just covered in like green. Um, I'll just call it fluff. I don't actually know what the material was. Yak hair, maybe. It's just covered in green. So it kind of looks like a piece of algae. Um, and then the way to catch them is actually kind of flossing. Mm-hmm. You pretty much just find them feeding and you throw it in front of them and then you just strip it in real slow and hope that he comes up and takes a bite. Um, and the one that I ended up catching, we were on a flat and they actually don't eat that much on this on these flats. But we were in a spot where they were sitting in current and they were kind of eating a little bit. Um, and Tabby was going after a permit at that time, and I was just trying to catch a milkfish. <clears throat> well, I just decided, why not? Let's just throw at them, see what happens. And Tabby's throwing out this permit, and I was kind of just throwing it out in front of him. And like I said, you throw it out, and you just kind of strip it in slow. And when I hooked this milkfish, I, I wasn't even looking at it. Like, Tabby hooked into something, and I thought she got the permit. So I, we both, uh, it was me and this this guy named Chase, we both looked up at it. We're all excited about it. And it ended up just being a bonefish because you got boned. That's the saying out there. You got boned. Um, and then my rod crazy because this milkfish bit this thing and started just running. I mean, and he ran. I've never had a fish take me so far into my backing. Almost had to go after it. I mean, it was just insane. And the interesting quality about milkfish is that they actually don't build up lactic acid like normal fish or normal humans. So they never, ever get tired. It takes a very, very, very long time to get a milkfish tired. So I have a video that I'm going to edit and eventually put out. But I fought this milkfish, and it's not a huge fish. I mean, 70 centimeters, I think it was. It's a decent size. No, big fish, nonetheless. But, like, for what it was, it should have been in the net very, very quickly. And I fought this thing for 20 minutes because it's just like a kind of a circus kind of clown thing where – Chase was chasing it with a net and like it swim away from him and then I'd have to get it back and then it'd swim away from him and then spinning us in circles and spinning us in circles. And 20 minutes later, we finally caught this fucking milkfish. Oh shit, you'll have to edit that out too. But I hate milkfish. But so like pushing a big one, I think would be almost almost impossible to land because it would just keep going and going and going and going and going and never stop. And the guys will even tell you, they're like, we hate netting milkfish. I do not want to net milkfish because of that exact reason. They just kind of run circles on you and never, ever stop. Now, Kwa, he says that he hates the milkfish, but he's totally skipped over the the whole hooking the trigger fish part other than Mm -hmm. it taking him over the edge. So I think, I think (laughs) that he really hates the trigger fish because he really doesn't want to talk about it. And milkfish 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 comes second. All right, let's talk about trigger fish because trigger fish are, they're, I don't know. They say they're fun to go after, but they're just a frustrating mess. That's Wait, I'm going to call Rex. I'm going to put Rex on speakerphone before you. You should uh, put Rex on it because, you know, Rex. I almost didn't believe it. I thought like Rex is the know, only one that says fishing for triggers is fun. Well, I think it is fun if you can do it often. But like when you're there trying to catch a trigger fish for the first time, I threw up 50 trigger fish qua before one decided to eat. Now, is it because they, they, they're they like musky? They eat when they want to eat? or is No, that they're always eating. They're always eating. They are just crazy spooky. Okay. And I'm talking like sometimes you can look at it and it spooks. Like you didn't even <laughs> see. You didn't even cast it. You just looked at it and it's gone. 
And like in those moments, you pretty much even the guide laughs and you're just like, what the hell just happened? He was like, I don't know. That's a trigger being a trigger. What? Well, I, it I just, love it. Yeah, a really, really frustrating experience. But trigger fish are one of those fish where you do have to be very accurate. Depending on which way it's feeding and which way it's facing, you have to drop that fly a rod's length away from him. And if you're too close, he's gone. If you're on the wrong side of him, he never sees it. You drag it over him, you cast too far, and the line hits him first, he's gone. You look at it wrong, he's gone. You get too close to him, he's gone. You see the pattern here, like, he's gone. That's pretty much it. Like, you see a trigger, he's probably gone already. Oh, it sounds easy. Yeah, it sounds fun. And there were so many triggers where, I mean, you cast, the wind takes it, hits him right in the head, see ya. You creep up on it, you're like, okay, you're about to cast, you raise your rod, it sees the rod being raised, out of here. So it's terrible. And then there's moments where you do everything right and you get the cast in, you survive entry, as I like to say, you got the fly in the water, you're stripping it, you're stripping it. Mofo just never sees it. He just doesn't, he just got his head in the mud and he's digging around and he just never saw your fly. And then you take another shot and you hit him in the head and he's gone. Triggers are a beast to catch on the fly. And they pretty much say you have to find a hungry trigger. They're always eating. I mean, you see them tailing, you see them digging up mud, they're always eating, but you have to find one that's hungry for a fly, which is why you end up throwing out like 50 of them because you spook them or they just don't want it. I mean, sometimes again, you'll do everything right and he'll just kind of pitter-patter away and be like, nah, forget you, I'm out of here. Um, it is pretty cool to see them go into what we call panic mode. So when you do spook them, they really freak out. It's pretty fun to see actually because they just go crazy and they don't really know what to do with themselves. <clears throat> so they just kind of like pitter-patter around the flat, pit around the coral head until they find a hole and then they go in the hole and disappear. I always remember the story of, of Rex telling of the first trigger fish that he ever threw a fly at where the trigger fish picked up the fly, looked up at him, spit it out right in front of him yep. and then swam away. Yep. I didn't have any of those experiences. So I threw a 50 triggers. I got two to eat. One never ate the fly. I mean, he pretty much, they follow it. So like, you know, it's going to happen. You throw the fly, he looks up at it. And then you pretty much only throw crab patterns, by the way. Um, but he will start following it and start following it and start following it. And you just pray to God, he eats it before he sees the boat. Um, and the one just followed and followed and followed and never ate. And the second one finally followed and ate. And I have the hook still. Their teeth. I mean, you guys know trigger fish. Their teeth yeah. are wild, crazy strong. Um, it just bent the hook to shit. I mean, the fly is destroyed. There's no feathers left on the fly. And the hook is bent like a whole 90 degree from where it was supposed to be. Um, How hard do you have to set the hook on this? Not, not, not so bad. I mean, you're pretty much just strip setting everything. The GTs, you have to rip their face off. The GTs have very hard mouths, so you have to rip their face off. And it's not a saying by me. That's a saying by the guides. Rip their damn face off. You have to do the triple set, boom, 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 really quick, and then kind of let them run so you don't end up breaking a 100-pound test. Um, the triggers, you just kind of have to set at one time. You feel the resistance. You just you give it a hard strip. Um, and pretty much either you hook them or it kind of just looks like another strip, and he'll keep coming after it. The worst thing you can do on any of these fish, any of the fish, is raise the route in. And it's really hard as a trout fisherman. It's really hard. I mean, you're um, talking about when you're trying to fight the fish or no, when, no, when you're, when you're setting, setting. The hook. 
It's like trial setting. They just don't you not want to raise. You want to you want to keep it vertical because as soon as you raise it, it changes the hooked angle and it comes flying out of their mouth. And it was the downfall of Tabby with two GTs. Um, and she hooked. She had one. I got mine on like kind of a um, a Blake Chokley kind of game changer pattern. Um, Tabby was throwing a beast fly. She's throwing a twelve weight into the wind on a GT. And I forgot to mention, so GTs you're pretty much looking for stingrays. They sit on the back of stingrays. And just sort of kind of looking for an easy meal. So like when the water starts coming in, they call it the push. So when the push happens, the rays come back onto the flat. The GTs follow them. And that's pretty much how you find GTs. You look for these stingrays. Um, but we found a stingray with a GT. I mean, a huge GT. Tabby through the beach fly, 12 weight into the wind perfectly. The GT comes up and absolutely annihilates this beast fly. I mean, I wish I had it on video. It was epic. And she trout setted it and just pulled the fly right out of its mouth. Heartbreaking. That's one of those opportunities I'm talking about. That was the only GT we saw all day. Heartbreaking. That was it. Um, she did throw at triggerfish a lot as well. And I, like I said, I the triggerfish, it's kind of a, a numbers game. You just got to throw at a lot of them. She ended up hooking one, but it got her over the edge of the coral head and broke her off. Also heartbreaking. So most of these yeah. fishes we're fishing, it's literally almost pretty much dug on lock drag, right? Right. Most of them yeah, pretty them. much. I mean, the only fish you don't do that with is a bonefish. You let yeah. them run. So, yeah. You're just fishing smaller pound tests because if you if you increase the the poundage with that, they won't eat the fly. They'll see the line. Um, but bonefish are really fun because they always do the same thing. They run once, they come back at you full speed, mm -hmm. and then they do that one more time, and yep. then they're pretty much spent and they're done. Yep, I've had my experience. It's amazing, though. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I can imagine how it would feel after you catching five or six of them. You're like, okay, I'm tired of this. I get it. But yeah, you know, just that one, it's like, okay, this is well worth it. Yeah, so pretty much we always, I mean, you know my motto. I always put a fish on the board. So like, yeah. we would go for bones in the morning. Um, the way it was when we were there, so the tides, um, seven-foot tides, the biggest in the world, pretty much, besides Maine has also, like, seven-foot tides. Um. The way it works is pretty much you roll out there, it's dead low. Outgoing tide, and it's like a river. So the tide flips. The water starts pushing onto the atoll or onto the flat. Um, and it is just a raging, raging river. And that's what pushes all the fish onto the flat usually because they, when it gets low, they kind of leave the flat and they kind of go find deeper water. And then when the water starts coming in, it pushes bait in, obviously, and it pushes the big game fish back on. So there's one day we were out there with a guy, Jason B. Um, it was epic. It was insane. We did what we call surf walk. So you have to imagine this atoll. So there's this atoll, which is kind of like a pancake flat. So all around it is crashing waves. All around it is deep water that goes to these shallows. So you have crashing waves everywhere. So you can walk around the edge of the coral flats and kind of just cast into like you would in the Jersey Shore. You're just casting into these giant waves. Um, and when the push starts you pretty much, you can see the fish in the waves as they're thinking about coming onto the flat. So there's that that picture that I post on Instagram of me and Tabby doubled up with Blue Trevally because we were walking along the surf walk and all of a sudden there's this huge pack of Blue Trevally and GTs everywhere. And you throw your fly out there and it's epic to see. It's crazy to witness. I mean, you see striped bass come at your fly, like this is lightning quick fish eating it. They're attacking it. Um, they kind of like bump it a bunch of times. So they kind of like zoom, 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 zoom. And then they eat it. Um, and then sometimes they just decide not to eat it at all, which is again, heartbreaking. But 
Uh, in that moment, Tabby hooked up. I was all excited. And then another one was with that fish. And then I threw at that and it ate it. So we ended up doubling up on those blue trevally. Um, And they fight just like a GT. I mean, they're very, very powerful fish. Um, they're just a little bit smaller in terms of size. But one and done. I mean, they pretty much do one giant run and they're pretty much spent at that point. They put everything into it. Um, it's really the chase that's just exciting with all of these fish, in my opinion. It's just hunting them down, getting them to eat the fly, which is the best part of all of it. Now, I want to I want to ask you about the challenging part, you know, the heartbreaking moments, like you mentioned. I know you mm. talked about some of the heartbreaking moments that, that Tabby had. I know you didn't mention it yet, but I know that you had one with a permit, mm. unfortunately. Um, how do you how do you motivate yourself or how do you stay motivated from, OK, you know, wow, I just had this incredible opportunity. Things the stars didn't align. It didn't work out. How do you pick yourself back up? You yeah. Know? Um, I think, it, I think it just comes with fishing, honestly. I mean, cause Tabby took it pretty hard, honestly. Um, you know, every day she would, we, she hook a GT and lose it, or she'd miss a GT. Right. And now you're one day closer to the end. It's kind of what you were talking about earlier. Like we spent all this money and you're missing your opportunity. Now you're one day closer to the end. Now you're another day closer to the end. Right. And on your last day, our last day, there was a lot of pressure. Um, the last day she still hadn't caught a GT and we did a, a beach walk and she had it. I mean, this GT came right in for the fly. It just never ate the damn thing. Like it was following it, doing that zoom, 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 and just never ate it. And, um, I mean, she took it pretty hard for me. I just, you know, I think it comes with experience. It's just fishing at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I mean, either it's going to happen or it's not. Um, and you really need that mindset going into it. I mean, if you think you're going to go there and you're going to catch everything, it's going to be a heartbreaking trip, honestly. Um, so I think you really need to have, you need to, what I like to say, I need, you need to manage your expectations. Yep. It's fishing after all, it's not catching. And I hate that saying, cause for me, it's usually catching, but I try to manage my expectations and it's really hard to do in one of these big trips. Like you go there and you start seeing all the fish and you go, this is going to be crazy. And what you see on YouTube, unfortunately, sets you up for those bad expectations because yeah. they show you the crazy moments. And frankly, those happen. They just don't happen frequently. It's kind of just like striper fishing. You get into crazy, crazy blitzes with stripers. Mm -hmm. Doesn't happen every day. I mean, it's a little more frequently because there's a lot of fish around, but um, you just need to you need to be prepared mentally and physically for this kind of trip. Yeah, I, I think it's it. good advice because I know I'm definitely one of those people that, you know, like you have a trip lined up so far in advance. You start thinking about it. You're like, okay, I want to do X, Y, and Z while I'm on this trip. And then yep. you're constantly putting pressure on yourself. Things start not to happen that way. And it starts to get into your head and you start to, then, then you're just, you're putting even more pressure on yourself and you're focusing on what's not going right when, you know, you should be devoting your energy to how to make things mm -hmm. go right. Right. And that's when I usually, I mean, you've been on trips with me like that, where we've been on Delaware trips where it just doesn't materialize. Mm -hmm. I mean, bugs don't come out or we miss a fish, we lose a fish. Um, That's when I sit down and have a beer. Yeah. Well, I that's see it. You, you got to go to, into every trip with low expectations. You know what I mean? It's just the way it is. You know, it's just like, I don't think so. I think you just have to change your expectations. Like I go into a trip always having high expectations. Mm -hmm. But when that starts to happen, I sit down, I have a beer, and I go, look at this gorgeous place I'm in. Exactly. Look at this place I may never be in ever again, or the situation I'm in. Like, And watch the sunset and be like, okay, you know, 
the sun comes up tomorrow and you can maybe try it again. Yeah, give it a shot. You're there. You're you you're already taking the trip of a lifetime. Actually, these fishes are just bonuses, you know what I mean? So right, right. So we could talk about the permit as kind of a closer because it was my closer, actually. It was one of my last days. Yeah. Uh and it was the only, I mean, I have four pins over here. I have bonefish, trigger, GT, and milkfish. So the the permit was the only pin I did not get. The ultimate um, slam. That would have been the ultimate slam, that one that and fish. I had it. <laughs> I had it. So we saw a few permit, really never had a good shot, no good opportunity. So I wasn't too mad about it. You know, like you see them, they disappear. It's kind of like the bonefish, mm -hmm. like the keys. You see them, yeah. they're ghosts and they disappear. And maybe they 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 pop back up, but we had these, these permit golden. Are they golden permit? Yeah, they're very bright, very golden. And that's how you know it's a permit because you can see in the water. It's like bright gold color. Um, and there was, so Todd on our trip, caught a couple like I, I won't say they're tiny i don't want to discredit his catch because he did catch two permit actually but they were kind of football sized permits um still just as difficult to catch i mean you got to mm -hmm. put that fly in the right second have the permit feeding eat the fly and then catch it um but we had these three permits or perms as they call them that came on the flat and they were just going crazy and they were big big permit uh i threw my fly at um pretty much one cast he came up he ate it i was cloud nine i was so excited i was like holy crap this is gonna happen and he took a big run and we started to move to kind of get away from this coral head so it couldn't do what it usually does and swim on the coral head and break me off and well i just popped out just heartbreaking i've said it a bunch of times but it really was like that was one of those situations where i was like well that was probably my only shot um and i don't think i'm gonna get another one and i never did we never saw another permit that entire trip and um there is better times to go if you're like chasing that permit hunt because there's a whole bunch of different species of permit which i didn't appreciate um there's africanas there's some other kinds that are named i don't know we'll have to look it up later but there's a whole bunch of different permit species like they look very different the one in um the indian oceans versus the one in dubai looks very different versus the one here in the states so if you're chasing permit there's like a specific season you can go to alphonse to catch permit and I said that lightly because you can go to Alphonse to try to catch a permit. They still might not show up, but there's just a different time of year when there's more permit prevalent on the atoll. I was going to say, that's one of the interesting things when I first started looking up about the Seychelles is like our permit here, they're like that bluish gray color with maybe like a little bit of gold underneath their chin. Whereas, you know, these permit over there, they're like predominantly gold, golden looking. Yeah, they're called Indo Indo Pacific G, uh, permits or something. Mm -hmm. I can't look it up, but there's a whole bunch of different kinds. But you're totally right. Like the most striking characteristic of the ones over there is their like goldish color. Yeah, they look incredible. Yeah, I would like I said, I would definitely recommend if anybody's ever interested in seeing all the different fish species that they have out there. Definitely go just search like yellow dog fly fishing top species to catch in Seychelles. It'll come up with like all these exotic fish like wrasses and parrot fish in addition to all the ones that we've talked about um you know that bobby saw out there on the island that he was at i i did just google pacific and the first thing that comes up is actually yellow dog and so the indo-pacific permit there's three different kinds there's the blocky the africanus and the anak you're probably saying those all wrong but they all look very unique like you'd think that you probably see that they were permit 
but they all look very, very different. It's kind of like a brook trout versus a rainbow trout. You know it's a trout, but there's just something special about them. Well, even the colors on the fish, you know, like the trigger fish out there are just absolutely beautiful. You know, I oh would encourage God. anybody, if you haven't already, go on Bobby's Instagram and look at the video of the trigger fish because in addition to just the size, which is a lot bigger than any triggers we have around here, the colors are yeah. just incredible. Yeah, that one trigger I got, uh, I can't, we called it the mustache trigger. It's like mustache or something. I think it is mustache. Um, that's the kind of trigger I got, but they also had this yellow star trigger fish, which is also just gorgeous. Um, the one I caught was technically deemed easier to catch, although they all sucked. So I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, but the one I caught was in theory, a little bit more aggressive and takes a fly a little more frequently than the other kind that's out there, but gorgeous, gorgeous fish. Mm -hmm. so um, would you say, would you say a trip like this is very physical and mentally challenging? Right for anyone. Yeah, it's it's everything. I mean, I told you the day. I mean, you're up at 5:30. You're we fish seven days straight. Um, so there's no rest for the weary here. This is not this was not your typical relaxing honeymoon I did by any standard. I mean, we were up at 5:30 and we went till midnight pretty much every single day. Um, which is kind of mine and Tabby style anyway. I'm always on the move. Yeah. Um, but it is very, very physically challenging. I mean, you do not have to do what I did though. Like you can go out there, and it's one of the things looking back. Um, we did actually bring out a couple times like some snorkel gear with us, mm -hmm. um, which was very frustrating because actually after I lost that permit, we decided to snorkel and we jumped in the coral flat and there was just permit friggin' everywhere. Oh man. Right at your finger. Oh no. And it was so I was screaming under the water. Tabby has video and you just hear me go like <laughs> um I want to see that video. Yeah, I'll show you that video. But there's just permit everywhere under there. They just don't eat during that moment. Like they gotta be on the flats eating. Um, but it's one of the things we didn't take advantage of. There's so much to do out there. There's snorkeling trips. Oh, we didn't even talk about the tortoises. There's tortoises everywhere. They have a tortoise sanctuary there. They like pretty much breed the tortoises there to keep them alive and running. But giant, We're giant, talking about tortoises. giant tortoises, right? We're talking about tortoise your size. Yes. Dumbo um, tortoises. And so they have tortoise experiences. They have conservation sessions that you can do. They do snorkeling and, and scuba diving. Um, we didn't do any because it was so rough, but they do deep sea. They do sailfish on the fly, which I was this close to trying to do. Um, was really cool. And I didn't even talk about uh, the island itself, but the island is all sustainable. And they're trying to be, well, they're not all sustainable yet. They're trying to become 100% sustainable. So the food at this place is pretty much all homegrown. Like you eating fresh lettuce and fresh bok choy and they go out every day and catch a fish. So you're eating a fresh wahoo and fresh tuna. Uh, and pretty much you have you have sushi every single day. It's fresher than fresh, like just right off the boat. There was that one snapper too you were telling me about, right? I can't remember the name of it. I looked job, it up after we job talked. Fish. It's called a job fish. Yes. I ate a lot of job fish. <laughs> job fish. Um, I hooked a job fish and actually on a popper and it fell off, but... You can do actually, uh, I forget what they call it. They called it a kitchen run. If you wanted to go see them, how they catch the fish and prepare the fish, like you can go out there on the boat with them and they'll, I mean, it's traditional fishing, it's bait and hook, right? But they will let you catch a fish and then you know that you caught that fish and you're going to eat it for dinner that night. It's so, such an incredible ecosystem and it's all sustainable. And again, it's all solar. So there's no electricity on the island besides the sun. And their goal is to be 100% sustainable uh, in the coming years. I mean, they're going to try to 
pretty much grow all their vegetables. I don't know if they're thinking about having meat on the island, but there is wild chickens right now, but they said they don't eat them. But I could see them kind of like setting up a chicken colony or, or a flock of, of, of chickens and, and eating them. So there's always meat on the island and it would help reduce the cost, obviously, because then they don't have to barge all this stuff in. And it would just also make it even more experience to know that you're eating sustainable, kind of you're in a sustainable ecosystem and you're not creating any waste at all. <clears throat> I have one final question I want to ask you Bobby, about this. And th this is going to be a deep question. Okay. But you'll see where I'm going with this. How do you make your dreams come true? And what <laughs> I mean, what I mean by that is whether someone who's listening right now is thinking about going to the Seychelles or any other place that's a, that's a destination you know, bucket list place that requires a lot of travel, a lot of preparation, and maybe a significant financial commitment. How do you make that happen? Yeah. What is um, your advice to people that, you know, are looking to do something like that? Well, I, I have a funny answer and I have the real answer. Um, the real answer is to plan and plan effectively and efficiently. I mean, this is many years in the workings here. This is not like I decided, hey, I'm going to go to seashells tomorrow. Oh, shit, somebody drink. I said seashells instead of seashells. Um, there we go. Thank you, Tyler. Um, this was many, many years in the workings. I mean, this is not like we sat around and planned this for a year and a half. Uh, and really, it was longer than that because it was really three years of planning to figure out where are we going to go, make sure we have the funds for it, and, and get it to work as perfectly as it did. The funny answer is you should just pray for another COVID pandemic because the only reason I was able to afford this trip is because my wedding got canceled. And instead of having a giant wedding, we spent all our money on a fishing trip. So that's or kind you could of just cancel the giant wedding to begin with. Just well, forget all that. You could do that too, but having a COVID wedding was pretty nice and very life-changing for us. I mean, it was probably the best and worst decision of our lives, honestly. Um, and I loved every minute of this trip. So, I mean, to me, it was worth every penny. I think everyone should elope if they're thinking about getting married. Don't have that giant wedding. It's really not for you. It's more for your family anyway at that point. Courthouses so just, are very nice. Yeah. So just, you know, do what you want to do. And I think my other advice is, you know, there's lots that go into there's people that plan and save for the future. But, you know, you're only young for so long. So make, make the most of it and make the best of it. And if you have the funds and you have the desire, well, you should go. And this is one of those trips you could try to do on a budget. I mean, you don't have to do fishing every day. You don't have to do all the activities. You can find the cheapest flight and the cheapest way to get there. And you could stay in the, um, the least expensive bungalow that they have, which m might be a tent outside. I don't even know what the options are. So you could do this on a budget if you really, really wanted to. Um, luckily we had the fun so we could kind of splurge a little bit and drink the alcohol and drink the beers and and so forth and buy all the flies we really wanted to um, but that's kind of my advice i mean plan effectively plan efficiently and you're only young once so you know figure out a way to make it happen well that and i also think that you have a very understanding wife that enjoys things you do too that you know that well i guess that kind of yeah comes, i guess right i guess it's my other piece of advice is, you know, find a partner that loves life the same way you love life and enjoys the things that you enjoy doing. Um, I've met many people that have kind of <clears throat> completely opposite scenarios where, you know, the wife wants to go shopping and the other person wants to go camping and it just doesn't, 
I don't ever really understand how they make it work, but somehow they do and kudos to them. But it's just so much better where you can enjoy these experiences with your significant other because A, you enjoy being with them. And then B, you just enjoy having this moment with them. And then it's one of those moments you'll never forget and you'll have this lifelong memory. So um, yeah, I think that's a good point, Kwa. I think you should have a partner that enjoys what you do and loves what you do. Agreed. So that means we have to set up a session soon because my wife is starting to get that kind of kick that she wants to learn how Perfect. to fly fish. Awesome. So I bet best bet would be just have it, let her have a session with Tabby and then that'll work out better oh, than, than, have, yeah. than, have, than having you yell at her. <laughs> I'm not that mean. <laughs> I'm just constructive. I'm just trying to make you a better person. He is. He he is he right. Does. It is all it's all constructive feedback. It is never anything that is demeaning or anything like that. And the good um, thing is, I mean, usually on my trips now, I find I think you know, I've gotten to that point where like catching the fish is just a bonus. I'm just yeah, all about exactly. being out there. And, uh, and, and spending it, so. time and spending time with friends. That's yeah, what we do. I'm usually, you know, sitting around with a beer in my hand yelling at you just gibberish because it just it just it's makes funny, the experience it's funny. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing I take away from, you know, when we've talked about this trip previously and as well as, you know, this uh our conversation here tonight is that yes, we are talking about fishing for incredible fish in a faraway place that's like paradise. But at the same time to me, we're also talking about making things happen you know and not just thinking about okay i'd really like to do that someday it's like no how do i make that happen you know how do i make my dream trip come true and to me you know that is kind of what you were going back to saying you know you only get one life right i mean you're only young for so long or you're only able to do these things for so long so if you really yeah. have your mindset on doing it, how do you make it happen? I have, I have one point that we could probably close with as well, because so when we were traveling out, actually the head guy, his name was Warren. Um, he was kind of traveling with us because we were on the same crazy flights home. So the flights home, by the way, just so you understand, was an hour from the Seychelles, Alphonse to Mahi. And then it was Mahi to Ethiopia and then Ethiopia to Brussels and then Brussels to Newark, New Jersey. And that was all in 36 hours. Oh God! We were just on planes for pretty much two days straight, uh, just craziness. But when I was talking to Warren, I was asking him like, "Where, where does he want to go to fish? Like, if you had the chance to fish," and his first response was, "I would love to get to the states." Um, and because he has that South African passport, for him to get to the states is not easy. It's mm -hmm. very, very challenging. So, what I'll conclude with here is, even though the Seychelles is a dream destination for us. I think we kind of all give the States a bad rap. There's so much great fishing here and so many great opportunities. And we actually have GTs in Hawaii. If you really wanted to go mm -hmm. do that, that's a cheaper trip and a cheaper trip and a little bit less expensive. So if you wanted to go chase GTs, you actually could go just down to the 50th state down there and, and off to Hawaii and try to chase them yourselves. But that just goes to the fact about the money again. So you do not have to do an expensive trip to be happy and catch some really cool fish. And there's lots of people in the world that wish they could be right here stateside with us experiencing what we have in this continent that we're in instead of having to fly all the way over to the Indian ocean. So I, I think you just need to appreciate what we have here and use it to the fullest. I think that's very well said. I think that's, that's great advice for all of us. Definitely great way to close um, it out, Bob. Definitely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to wrap up another great episode of the Tide Chasers podcast. Uh, a little bit different than what we normally do, but definitely, uh, you know, some great info about an amazing trip to an amazing place. 
um, some great fishing and more importantly, you know, talking about how you can make your dream trip come true, whether it's a trip to the Seychelles or, uh, you know, any other place that you're looking to go. So we thank you for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. Um, make sure that if you haven't already, give Bobby a follow on Instagram at fishing with a PhD. Um, you want to check him out. You can see all of his pictures and videos from the Seychelles as well as the many other great things that he puts out there. So, um, Bobby, is there anything that you wanted to to say about as far as like how you booked the trip? Anything along yeah, those I have, lines? Yeah, I have one closing thing because there's a lot of people that need to be thanked for this trip. And I know I'm going to forget people. Um, but really, Yellow Dog was kind of the star of the show here. So Brenda and Alec, um, uh, really a huge thanks. And Alec really helped with my packing and so forth. And I really like to get him on the podcast because he really is the Seychelles King. He guides out there sometimes. So it'll be really cool if we get Alec on the trip. But um, just a shout out to all the guides that were on this trip and Alphonse. Um, you can also just reach out to Alphonse directly, the fishing company themselves, and they'll help you book something and, and help you out with timing and so forth. But I mean, my guides, Matt, Reese, Chase, Jason B, Gary. Um, I think I'm fishing one, Warren, the, the head guide. I mean, they really just made the trip. I mean, and then there's just everyone else um the lifelong friends that I've made that are from Belfast Ireland and actually I'm fishing with one of them he's actually from Connecticut which is really nice so I'm actually taking him up to the Delaware um Todd and Jess who got married they eloped actually in the Seychelles nice pretty cool for them they 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 eloped in the Seychelles got married and then did their honeymoon fishing um really really cool for them but they're actually out in Montana now and um there's a ton of people I'm forgetting but just an awesome group of people uh and i just can't thank them all enough for the trip it's awesome well thanks again ladies and gentlemen for tuning in uh make sure you please give us a follow um subscribe as well to our podcast and until the next episode tight lines and we'll see you out there on the water all right tight lines everyone